Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. Do you ever have one of those days where you think you did something and then you realize you didn't do it? And now you're not sure if you even want to do it? <laughs> well, that's the kind of day that I'm having already. So it's very interesting. When I was looking at the news, obviously I'm going to talk about the debt ceiling. And I'm on Chip Roy's team, so you can you know, not even have to wonder and wait uh, to understand. Uh, I don't really care. What all of the, I don't even care what Newt Gingrich has to say, although I consider him one of the smartest people in the world. I think he's wrong. I think he is uh, running interference for uh, Kevin McCarthy. I think that in his older years, Newt has become much more afraid of public opinion than he ever was as a young congressman and a speaker. So for him to say, oh, well, this is a great first step. I'm so sick of first steps. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm just really sick of first steps because there's never a second step. And if there is a second step, it's smaller than the first step, and we never get what we deserve. We just never do. Or actually what we send them to Washington to do. So here we are as Americans struggling, all of us struggling to uh, balance our budgets, right? Groceries, the price of groceries is crazy. When I was out in California, I went and shopping, and prices are a little higher in California, but they're not so much higher that it should have made as big a difference as it did. I pulled up uh, you know, to the cash register, emptied the cart, a cart, not multiple carts, not even a big cart, and it was like 200 and change. And I'm like, wait a minute. What on earth is uh, wrong with this picture? And I'm not alone. This is happening to families all over the country, all over the, now I know it's happening here and I know it's happening in California. So that's from one coast to the other. The cost of childcare. I've got one grandson who's still in a daycare. You know, I, I don't even want to tell you what they pay for his daycare. I went to, I got a, a bachelor's degree for what they pay in a year for daycare. Of course, again, it's California, but you know, come on, guys. Uh, people are trying desperately to balance their own budgets. They got gas prices uh, fluctuating up and down, but mostly up. They can't go on a vacation. You know, I was told this is going to be terrible. The airports are going to be so crowded and the roadways are going to be so crowded. That's all I heard, right? I was reporting on that a week or two ago. I didn't have any problems at the airport, not going, not coming. They weren't that crowded, and they were sufficiently staffed. And this was supposed to be the biggest holiday weekend of the year. You know why they weren't crowded? Because people cannot afford to pay a couple of hundred dollars for a seat, a seat that's too small and where you don't even get a, you know, a, a, a couple of peanuts. So, no, people are not vacationing. People are not able to pay the costs 
of what they need to exist to subsist on. And here you have a group of Republicans who basically should have been in the driver's seat. You know, get some spending cuts. Put in some, uh, you know, building pro-growth policies. And just a little debt ceiling increase. Just a little one, right? No, but they can't do that. Instead, you know, uh, when President Biden demanded that they do everything he wants and won't negotiate, they said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, do almost, uh, you know, a little bit. We'll negotiate a little bit. It's amazing to me. A and this is, this is uh, you know, this is what I'm supposed to feel excited about today. They gave away all their leverage, and they did it behind closed doors. None of us knew what was going on. So if you're a, a fiscal conservative and you'd like to see the economy booming again, you're about to get the shaft yet again. Now, granted, there are some very minor, um, I, I wouldn't call them victories, but there's some very minor uh, pluses to this agreement, or at least what I've read of it. Very minor. Because what it does is it raises the debt ceiling by about $4 trillion for two years. You know, it's not COVID anymore. Spending trillions of dollars, they excused it because of COVID. What's the excuse now? They're saying, oh, well, you know, this is pretty consistent with the structure of budget deals that we did back in 2018 and 2019, which, of course, raised the debt limit. And now they talk about a rollback of non-defense discretionary spending to fiscal year 2022. I beg your pardon. Why wouldn't we go back to fiscal year 2018 before the pandemic? 2022 is still uh, a resultant pandemic. And as far as defense spending, you know, the president requested about $900 billion dollars. Meanwhile, we got a crappy, you know, uh, record. We've got outdated equipment. We've thrown away equipment. We left it in, uh, you know, Afghanistan, just ran tail, left very expensive equipment there. And, and he's worried about, you know, will it be enough? They capped the top-line federal spending to 1% annual growth for six years. But after 2025, there are no budget caps. All there is are non-enforceable appropriations targets. Now roll that around your tongue for a minute. Non-enforceable appropriations targets after 2025. And the, uh, this deal fully, 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 fully doesn't do what they promised. It cuts IRS funding, which they did promise, but not the $80 billion they approved last year, which, of course, was the $80 billion to hire more armed IRS agents. They got, uh, you know, no new taxes, they said. We'll see. When they said that there are not 87,000 IRS agents, that they, they took that out in this bill, it's a lie. Printing more money which they will do to increase spending, is a tax. 
whether you want to call it one or not. I don't have to be uh, Thomas Sowell. I don't have to be an accountant or an eco economist to know that if you print more money so that you can spend more money, that's a tax. And it puts the current inflation levels literally on steroids. So no, I'm not happy camper about this bill. I am definitely uh, not going to roll over and play dead because there are a number of people who think like, well, you know, you don't want to look like you're standing in the way and then there won't be enough money for veterans. Let me tell you something. I've been through this so many times already and I could tell you without a question, they will always have enough money. We collect a ton of money in taxes every single year. What they're going to have to do is make decisions. What do they spend the money on? And if you think I care how much money goes to the Department of Transportation and Pete Buttigieg, who thinks that roads are racist, you're crazy. You can close it, as far as I'm concerned. Doesn't do anything anyway. Leave it to the states. Yeah, I know there's an interstate, you know, system. Okay, well, put it under Homeland Security. I don't care. Let's start merging some of these agencies and let's start making people do twice as much work for the same amount of money. That's what's happening in the private world, right? I don't know about the rest of you, but we each get added new responsibilities every year without new money. So come on. The government has to uh, take its own medicine, take the same medicine that the people who fund it and support it and vote for it or vote against it, they should go what we're through going through. So I've always liked Chip Roy, but now I like him even more because he is holding the line. And I'm grateful. Somebody's got to. He had all these charts and he, he came up with all of these numbers. He happens to be a member of the House Freedom Caucus but he was in front of the House Rules Committee preparing the debt limit bill, or as they're calling it, the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023. Come on, guys. When did, did our Congress ever even uh, assume that they could call themselves fiscally responsible? Yeah, exactly. Not happening. So here they were, you know, uh, think back to when Speaker McCarthy wasn't speaker, and they were trying to get him in as speaker. And Representative Chip Roy from Texas was going from meeting to meeting, trying to make sure that people like him, hardline conservatives like me, got what they wanted before agreeing to back him. And one by one, they got almost all their demands met. They got a power-sharing agreement between Kevin McCarthy and the right flank. They won three seats on the Influential House Rules Committee. One of them, of course, did go to him, Chip Roy. They got a commitment from Kevin McCarthy that Republicans would never raise the debt ceiling without deep spending cuts and a rule allowing any one lawmaker to force a vote to oust the speaker should he fail to keep his promises. What was the point of all that if they're not going to use that? He's the policy chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, and he's a spending expert. And now he's, he's calling it as he sees it. McCarthy reneged on the deal, and he's trying to exert his leverage again. And this time, it's very, very dangerous. So we'll see.
Chipper Roy said, if we can't kill it, we're going to have to regroup and figure out the whole leadership arrangement again. He was working alongside with the leaders just a couple of weeks ago. But again, you know, they 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 blew it. McCarthy and his guy and his rhinos blew it. Anyway, I'm going to be talking with uh, the uh, Heritage Foundation. I'm going to get to talk with an expert, David Ditch from American Heritage. So you won't want to miss that. We'll talk about this debt ceiling because we've lost this. This is lose a lose for us, whether or not. Uh, Newt Gingrich thinks so, or whether or not, uh, you know, any of these uh, rhinos, and, and calling Newt is a rhino is really painful for me, but my goodness, what was that article he wrote about? I, I, was, I, felt, I felt betrayed, I felt defeated. Anyway, let me take a quick break. Don't forget to download the 850 app or go to 850wftl.com, the website, so you can participate in all of our contests, and I will be right back. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, and uh, welcome back. And as promised, I have uh, David Ditch on the line. He is a senior policy analyst uh, on budget policy uh, with the Heritage Foundation. And David, I just did a monologue in which I literally am pounding the table that this is the biggest betrayal of the conservative voters yet. I'm used to being betrayed. But I'm really, I don't like being betrayed and then lied to on top of it. So wh what do the heritage folks think about this uh, debt limit deal? The, the more I dig into the weeds on this thing, the worse it gets. Yeah. Uh, on, on, the, on the surface level, th this thing took what was a Grand Slam home run uh, that was the bill that passed about four or five weeks ago in the House turned it into, at best, a bunt Look. at a time when the country really needs to get some, some big wins. We, we need to make real progress because we're so deep in the hole. And then as I learn more and more about these budget gimmicks loaded into this bill that you, you need to be someone like me, a hardcore budget nerd, to understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know what I found really upsetting, too, because one of my great heroes was a former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, who wrote this article about how much, uh, how dramatically better off we are because of the way Kevin McCarthy handled all this. I think that we just took a loss. Yeah. Uh, so 
what what the media really what the mainstream media doesn't talk about nearly enough is the price that Americans from coast to coast and border to border are paying for the massive federal government we have for the reckless deficit spending they run up. They took the COVID pandemic and among all the other abuses, one of the things they did is they ran the printing presses 24-7 printing money so that they could give special favors to countless special interest groups. And all of those trillions of dollars that they created are a big reason why we're going through so much inflation and why that inflation, contrary to what Biden and his cronies have said, isn't going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think about, you know, this? all I keep hearing from the various uh, uh, economists that have been weighing in mostly on the left is that this is a great first step. You know, I've lived long enough and watched this process long enough to know that the first step is always the only step, and this isn't very historic at all. Exactly. And again, if, you, if this had no gimmicks whatsoever, if what they were calling a spending cut was a straightforward spending cut, that would be one thing, but it's not. One of the things they like to do is they, they, they say, oh, this is the spending cap. And then when it comes time to pass their big omnibus spending package, usually in the midst of the holiday rush and most people don't have the time to pay attention, they say, oh, we're going to take money from this fund, money that wasn't actually going to be spent. We're going to, quote, unquote, cut it or eliminate it, and that gives us some fake savings that we can spend on real things. Mm -hmm. There's over $50 billion worth of these kinds of gimmicks baked into the spending package, mm -hmm. and then the spending caps that they're, they're crowing about on McCarthy's side they go for like five years. Any spending limit that's passed by this Congress the next Congress could blow away like a like some dust off of a cabinet. Yeah, it's well, because yeah, when they talk about budget caps, that's not what this says. This says that after 2025, there are quote non-enforceable appropriations targets. That's just insane. That that doesn't tell me that they've put a cap in place, one percent annual growth for six years. First of all, why did we go back to fiscal year 2022 levels, which was pandemic levels. Why didn't we go back to 2018? Exactly. And when they, when they talk about spending caps, they're not talking about spending caps over the entirety of the federal budget. They're talking about limiting spending on about 30% of the federal budget. The rest of it talking about interest payments on the debt, talking about welfare programs, entitlement programs, that is growing year after year much faster than inflation. That's the stuff that's driving the national debt to record levels, and they, they do absolutely nothing to touch that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and when you know McCarthy stands there in, and says to, to us that uh, there are no new taxes, that's nonsense. If you print more money, which is what they are doing, you in, you know, to increase their ability to spend, that's a tax. I don't care what you call it. This is one of the things that, that absolutely drives me up a wall. 
if you ask any Republican, whether they're conservative or moderate, talk about ask them to talk about the benefits of low taxes, they can talk a year off. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, a lot of them are very comfortable increasing spending on all their little pet programs and all their special interest groups. Any dollar the government spends, it has to be taken out of the economy in one form or another, whether they're taxing us today. And by the way, they're taxing us at record levels, mm -hmm. whether they're taxing our children tomorrow or 10 years down the road, that every spending increase is a tax hike. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And when I try to explain that to people or have a conversation you know, their eyes roll into the back of their heads and they just, uh, you know, they are okay with kicking this can down the road. We used to say that, you know, back in the day when Speaker Gingrich was negotiating with Bill Clinton, that you can't keep kicking the can down the road. We have literally run out of road now. And my grandchildren are looking at enormous amounts of debt and raising the debt ceiling doesn't solve that problem. No, in it's not just that they're raising the debt ceiling. See, again, let's go back to the bill that passed the House a couple of weeks ago. They were only going to increase the debt ceiling through probably next spring, and there were limits to how much debt we could add. With this new compromised debt ceiling bill, it's not only extending it all the way on, almost for, for two years from now into early 2025. But it's an all-you-can-eat buffet of debt. Mm -hmm. And any amount, it could be $3 trillion, it could be $4 trillion. If things go really off the rails, it could be a lot more than that. The national debt would go from $31.5 trillion to possibly $35 trillion. But let's, let's boil that down a little bit because that's a million bajillion dollars. Mm. The national debt right at that point could easily exceed $250,000 for every household in the country. Mm. That's like an additional mortgage. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, some of these so-called wins that are being touted, you know, they're so minimal. Uh, you know, we gave the House back to the Republicans, not because— um, we have a tremendous amount of faith in them, and they barely have a majority, but because we had made it perfectly clear, and Chip Roy said this best yesterday, that we expected them to give us a bang for the effort. And I keep looking at this, and like you, the the more I look at it, the the worse my mood becomes. You know, okay, permitting reform, that's a good thing. You want to have less red tape for businesses, uh, work requirements, that's a good thing. But it's not good enough. H how do we convince them that that they need to, to, to put some pro-growth policies into effect, or this is all going to end very badly? Yeah, when I was watching this unfold, I wasn't expecting that the bill that was passed with only Republican support would get signed by Biden and you know, allowed to get through the Senate by Schumer. But you, we didn't need something. But that bill was awesome. That was even more than we necessarily needed. Right. But there has to be some in between from an awesome bill to a damp squib like this bipartisan deal, mm -hmm. and for people like Speaker McCarthy to be running around claiming that this is the 
biggest deficit decrease legislation in the nation's history, that's farcical. We used to be able to get a lot more done. Unfortunately, a couple decades ago, there was this thing called the fiscally conservative Democrat. Well, that went from being an endangered species to an extinct species. So at this point, the extent to which you're negotiating with Democrats, it's, it's almost like you're negotiating with a brick wall in terms of their willingness to ever allow draining you know, even a couple drops of water out of the swamp here in D.C. Um, that complicates things. But then if you're, if you're giving up this much, they shouldn't be trying to spin the public with PR while at the same time allowing a bunch of obscure accounting gimmicks to add $50 billion to spending. Exactly. And, you know, obviously um, they need to go back to the negotiating table. Do you think get some concessions from this administration? They basically gave them a, a, a blank check for the debt limit for like two years. I, I, in my wildest imagination, I didn't think they'd give up that much. Can they go back and negotiate? It remains to be seen what's going to happen. Uh, a lot is going to depend on how votes go in the two chambers. Will there be, will there be enough support for it to pass the House? We still don't have a really good idea what's, what the numbers look like in the Senate. And if a vote fails in either one of the chambers, things are going to be back up in the air. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I tell my audience all the time, 33 years I've been in this game, you know, talking about these matters. I've seen numerous uh, occasions where the public is scared to death because they're told that if, oh, if they don't have this uh, debt ceiling raise, you know, the end of the world and all of these agencies aren't going to be able to pay the senior citizens and they're not going to be able to pay the veterans and the active duty military. And none of that is true. And yet the, the, the Republicans can't clearly state the message that there is no impending disaster um, by delaying this and getting some things put in place, which will save us in the long run. Um, but there is a real danger in accepting this. All I keep looking at is how many times we've been on the precipice. Look, I know that some people might not get a paycheck in Washington, D.C., maybe at the uh, you know Department of Transportation, but I'm okay with that. We're going to have enough money to pay the most important bills. And, and just this fear tactics and the Republicans caving like this just makes the public believe that uh, all that nonsense is true. It's always really striking to me how the media, will, the mainstream media, will trumpet the, you know, the apocalyptic end of the world headlines <laughs> when it's in service to maintaining the behemoth federal government we have. But there's so little coverage of things like how federal spending is driving inflation, Mm. how big the national debt is, how big the national debt is going to be getting, not 20 and 30 years down the road like when I was in high school, but 5 and 10 and 15 years down the line. I mean, Mm. it used to be that there were concerns that Social Security and Medicare would go bankrupt for the next generation of seniors. Now it's will Social Security will those programs go bankrupt for the people who are on the programs today? today. Mm-hmm. 
There's no meaningful attempt in Washington to address these massive fiscal imbalances and all think about all the inflation. Think about it's so much harder to get them to afford a mortgage today because interest rates have gone up. Mm-hmm. The pressures that are applied to the economy with this endless federal deficit spending are only going to get worse if Washington keeps kicking the can down the road. As you say, we've run out of road. We are facing consequences now. Mm-hmm. Those consequences are only going to get worse. Yeah. David Ditch, the senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, thanks so much for coming on today. I, you didn't make me feel any better, but that's okay, because these are serious times, and we need to have serious conversations, and not all of this, uh, oh, boy, look, they got a deal, and they said it couldn't be done. Well, you know, you can always get a bad deal. It's getting a good deal that we'd like to see. Thanks so much, David. I appreciate your time. Yeah, take care. Take care. All right, I I need to take a break, but I'm just so frustrated because you don't have to be an economist to understand. Look, when you sit down with your checkbook at the end of the month, if there's not enough funds in there, you can't pay your bills. And if you keep, you know, if you just borrow money, which is what we do, or print money, which we don't have the ability to do, that doesn't make your bills any less and it doesn't make your future any brighter. All right, let me take a break. I will be right back. Stay where you are. You know, the longer I'm at this, the more I understand how little I really have over the years um, experienced betrayals like I've been experiencing them in the last two and a half years. And, And when I say that, there were plenty of betrayals during the Obama years. There were plenty of betrayals during the Clinton years. There were plenty of betrayals during the George W. Bush years. Um, but there weren't a lot of betrayals of of my principles during most of the Trump era. Now, that doesn't mean I wasn't disappointed in the rhinos who stood in the way of him getting the things done that we had voted for and that we had basically um, asked them to do for us. I mean, this is a republic. You know, people so- sometimes, you know, confuse a democracy with a republic, and they're not the same thing. This is a representative government, which means the people who serve, serve at our behest, and they're supposed to carry out our requests. That's what elections are about. That's why when you know Barack Obama said uh, elections have consequences, and then again when uh, Donald Trump said elections have consequences, they do. They, they not only have uh, consequences in the immediacy, but they have long-term consequences. Look at the three Supreme Court justices that Donald Trump was able to seat. Now, they're looking you know, fairly good. I have, still have questions about Brett Kavanaugh, you know, I, I hated to see what he was put through to get confirmed, but I, I still have some questions about his uh, conservative bona fides. I do. Um, but I'm very, very pleased with Neil Gorsuch, and I think that Amy Coney Barrett is on the right track. I think it's brutal to be a Supreme Court justice, particularly a conservative one, because you're not only just, you know, uh, trying to interpret the Constitution, which is a hand, uh, you know, enough, but you're trying to pacify 
all of these various uh, political interest groups. And, and that's what they do, whether or not it's the way the founding fathers designed it, that's what's happened. And I look at all of this and I think to myself, the whole purpose of having a representative government is that the people that we send to Washington, for instance, I live in a district in South Florida. The person that I get to send to Washington, although I have not been able to send the person I would most like to represent me since I moved here, <laughs> but let's just say that for all intents and purposes, the majority of people who live in District 20 or 21 or 22 or whatever they call 23 at any given moment, because they keep switching that around as well, they should represent the majority of the people in that district. End of story. I don't need my congressman to go to Washington to represent, you know, the elites on Capitol Hill, to represent the uh, Republican Party or the Democrat Party, to represent the status quo, to represent the, the, the swamp. They're supposed to represent me so that when I walk into uh, the Department of uh, Motor Vehicles, my needs are met. They have sufficient funding. They have sufficient rules and regulations to ensure that safe drivers are on the road as much as they're able to. Uh, they take away licenses from people in my community when they get too old to drive. You know, those are the kinds of regulations that I want my representatives to put in place, particularly in South Florida, right? But when I walk into Publix or Winn-Dixie or, or, or BJ's or any other store, I don't want to see runaway prices. I want my representative government to, to make it their business to not force our economy, our overall economy, into this deficit spending. Because the deficit spending means there'll be inflation. Inflation means the prices will have to go up on the things that we use on a daily basis. You know, I, I revealed that, uh, you know, I was in California. I ended up at a... a Vons is the name of the supermarket there. And I, we filled up the cart, my husband and I, we filled up the cart and I get to the cashier and it's like 200 and something dollars. And I look at him and he looks at me and we look in the cart and I'm trying to figure out what, what just happened. Now, granted, I wanted to prepare some things that I, I make for you know the family that when I'm there, I make sure they have the goodies that uh, you know Derek grew up on, all that other stuff. And some of the ingredients are on the costly side, I like to use organic uh, chicken when I cook and things like that. But for goodness sake, that same shopping cart full of food in that same Vaughn supermarket just in March when I was there for my granddaughter's birthday would have cost $180 instead of $249. That's inflation. That affects me. And when I have congresspersons who go up, although California is a really poor example, when I have people from Congress who go up there and are absolutely unaware of what's happening back in their districts because, A, they never come here, or if they come here, they don't have to shop, or, B, because they don't care. They don't care. They're invested in maintaining as much power as they possibly can in D.C., they don't want to cede power back to the states. You know, even though we have now proven through the pandemic, and much to his credit, you know, Governor DeSantis, while he's not my guy for the presidency as a governor, he did what I believe the Federalists meant. He uh, customized 
his approach to COVID for the state of Florida. And we did fine. You know, it might not have worked in New York. I think it probably would have. But anyway, I'm, I don't live in New York. I live in Florida. So he did what needed to be done. He followed the science, unlike everybody else around the country or most of them. I, I think, you know, there were like five or six governors who actually followed the science. The rest of them just ceded their power to some bureaucrats, uh, one of whom was Anthony Fauci, which is the one thing I do believe that my guy, uh, you know, President Donald Trump, you know, to be picking on Ron DeSantis and saying he like handed over decision making to Anthony Fauci is totally unfair. Now, in the beginning, everybody didn't know what to do. Nobody knew. We didn't know how long this was going to last. We didn't know how virulent it was going to be. What we did know was that people were dying. People were contracting this and dying. And we didn't know how to address it. And so we definitely went overboard. But as soon as the science started to catch up and we realized, no, ventilators are not a good idea, we had a governor who said, okay, well, then we're going to make sure that we have masks where they're needed. We'll uh, have limits um, within reason, but we're not shutting down uh, churches if we're not shutting down Winn-Dixie, all right? And, and I give him, you know, a, a large round of applause for that. So I'm not happy when President Trump says, oh, well, he got that all wrong. No, he did not get that all wrong. He got the beginning wrong, just like the rest of the country, just like Donald Trump himself, who basically handed Anthony Fauci a carte blanche and said, tell us what to do and we'll do it. You know, who knew? How would Donald Trump know what a megalomaniac knucklehead Anthony Fauci was? He served under uh, Republican and Democratic administrations. I didn't know nothing... As a matter of fact, the only thing I knew about Anthony Fauci at the beginning of the pandemic was that I was not thrilled with the way he handled the AIDS epidemic. But then I had all these friends in the AIDS community who were telling me, well, he did the, you know, what he could do. Nobody knew and nobody, okay, it was true with the pandemic. Nobody knew at the beginning. But once we started to figure it out, what the heck? You know, nobody was willing to step up except a handful of governors, including ours. So I'm telling you, I look at this and, and the, the fear-mongering, and now it's coming from people who know better. Newt Gingrich knows better. Newt Gingrich knows that the, the country's not going to shut down. Our enemies are not going to come pouring across the border any more than they're pouring across the border right now if we don't raise the debt ceiling by June 1st. You know, they have these arbitrary magical dates, right? And Janet Yellen, uh, you know, uh, bangs her fist on the table, and President Biden says, you got to do this right now. It's going to be the end of the world. No, it's not going to be the end of the world. It's never the end of the world until God says so. But they just scare everybody to death, and what they do is they scare Republicans, and then the Republicans cave. Democrats don't cave. Nancy Pelosi doesn't cave, right? She didn't cave, even when it could be proven that the Affordable Health Care Act was a disaster, even when they couldn't get a website to run, even when it was proven that it wouldn't get uh, poor people who they say they were protecting, wouldn't get them coverage, it didn't matter. She said, we'll pass it, and then we'll talk about what's in it. See, Democrats play hard. They play to win. Republicans play to please, uh, you know, the view or something. I don't know what they did. I really don't. 
I, I, my friend Pat said that from now on we just call him Kevin Pelosi because he basically got uh, the deal that she would have gotten if she was still speaker. That doesn't make me happy. And I don't care what, you know, the various pundits or the various uh, politicos say about it. I want masterful people representing a masterful countryman like you and me and getting us what we need, not just for us. You know, I shared with someone this morning that I was visiting that this, I no longer pray for the outcome. What I pray for is that the right things are put in place. The outcome isn't in our hands, but we do know the difference between right and wrong. And it is wrong to lie to the American people and tell them they're getting one thing when you're giving them another, just so you can retain as much power as possible. That's what the government is doing to us right now. The debt ceiling package that we're looking at today, and the more I read it, I'm like uh, David Ditch at Heritage. The more I look at it, the more disgusted I get with it. I don't blame Chip Roy. I'm grateful that he charted, you know, he, he came out with charts and numbers because you cannot fight misinformation with more misinformation. You've got to fight it with facts. Anyway, don't forget at one o'clock, Dan Bongino, who is much more on the same page as me. At four o'clock, Ben Shapiro. At five o'clock, it's Matt Walsh. At six o'clock, it's the WPTV News. And then tomorrow morning, we'll begin it all over again with the South Florida Morning Show with Jen and Bill. So you basically can just leave the dial right where it is and you'll be fine. I'll be right back to finish this show. Oh, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. You know, I just, I need to calm down because it's not good for my ticker <laughs> when I get upset like this. It's really not. I was uh, looking at this morning at a story that I wanted to cover and I didn't have a chance. Um, you know, if we're going to have all this artificial intelligence, I hope really that we get some answers to some questions that I've always had. Like I read a story this morning about um, Tutankhamun, the Egyptian pharaoh. The ha they have literally rebuilt his face. And we're talking, he's been dead for over 3,300 years. And they, uh, they took his mummified skull and completed a digital model of what his face may have looked like during his time as ruler of Egypt. Now, see, to me, that's a great use for artificial intelligence instead of some of the garbage that I'm worried about. You know, because prior to this, the only thing we had were these, you know, uh, these elaborate masks that were created for these pharaohs. But now, with proportion data, and all of these cephalometric measurements, which I had no idea about any of this until I read it this morning, they take the digital skull and adjust it so that it becomes literally the skull of a young Tutankhamun. And that's fascinating to me. You know, um, by the way, it would also help us to figure out you know, what Cleopatra really looked like as we continue to argue over that. Just saying, you know, maybe we don't have to have those arguments anymore. And that would be awfully nice. 
Tomorrow I'll have more on the debt ceiling limits and all of the nonsense that's going on in Washington. Although, really, if I was if I was smart, I'd probably you know talk about Tutankhamen because that that'd be far more uh, interesting and far less aggravating. But that's just not now. Uh, uh, Chris Christie is about to announce that he is going to uh, throw his hat in the ring. Didn't he do this already? And didn't Donald Trump like pretty much mop up the floor with him? Yeah, pretty much. They're also saying Mike Pence is getting ready to announce. You know what I say? Bring them all on. You know, bring as many into this Republican presidential uh, boxing ring as possible. And the the more hilarity, the better for Donald Trump. And that begins with the 60-year-old Chris Christie, who uh, never saw a donut that he didn't get to know up close and personal. So One we'll see what happens. We have already uh, four, decla five declared candidates, and soon to be six, and then seven. And before you know it, we'll be back up to 10 or 12 or 13. Meanwhile, the only people challenging the seated president are Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson. Now, somebody suggested to me that if, uh, if Joe Manchin is, has no chance of winning his seat back in West Virginia, and it doesn't look like he is going to. 30 seconds. Looks like his challenger has a pretty good chance of winning. Well, then maybe Joe Manchin should throw his hat into the ring and uh, try to get the nomination away from Joe Biden. Just saying. And that pretty much does it for me. And uh, I thank you for your time this time until next time. My plan Ten. is to be back here tomorrow at noon, if it be his will, and he delays his coming. Remember that what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. And I think that's it. I think I'm out. You're out. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.